Hello, I'm Eddie Merckx. Welcome to the VeloCast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the VeloCast analysis of the 2016 Tour de France. In a race that has been largely sleepwalking its way to the Pyrenees, we were worried that the searing heat and stunning vistas would do nothing but entice the peloton to have a nice relaxing nap in a mountainside meadow. Thankfully, a certain Chris Froome decided that there would be no sleep till Paris and Mike dropped the descent of the Col de Perisor, taking both the stage win, the yellow jersey and the titan sphincter of every nervous man watching his testicle-rattling, top-tube-hugging race to the finish line. Actually, could I deal with that testicle thingy, top-tube thing that you just came out with? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm genuinely worried about this from a tech point of view. Do you remember when we met uh, Ben Sirota the first time you and I went to Eurobike? I do indeed, yeah. And he talked about, you know, they used 20 million layup parts for the bottom bracket shell and they had, you know, stress analysis for every single tube on the bike and the carbon layup was absolutely vital. And he talked, for you know, for a solid half hour and kept both of us interested, including you who aren't, you know, particularly a techie when it comes to that kind of stuff. And I was looking at Chris Froome sitting in the top tube of that Pinarello, pedalling like, uh, you know, God knows what he was pedalling like. I think I, I saw probably the perfect gift for, for what Chris Froome was like. You remember when Homer Simpson decides he wants to be a clown and joins Krusty's clown school? Yes. And and there's the, the big final test where he has to sit on a tiny clown spike and do the, the 360 wheel of death thing. That's exactly what Chris looked like today. No, exactly that. But, you know, you think about when you and I were wandering about that Eurobike and we were looking at top-end carbon bikes, and a couple of times I would reach out and squeeze them. And, mm-hmm. you know, the bikes, not Chris Froome's testicles or anything like that. And, and let's face it, there are lots of things you could reach out and squeeze out of Eurobike, but that's another story. <laughs> but, you know, these things, the, some of the tubes you can actually compress with your fingers because they're not loaded in a certain direction. So they can save weight by not laying, a, you know, a, a load of carbon in there. And I'm really worried that you've now moved by sitting on the top tube and pedalling like that into a situation that the bike isn't actually designed for. And I know this is really dull technical stuff after a day of, of proper, and I'm going to go back to my 80s analogy, proper 80s bike racing. I mean, this was proper bike racing we saw today. But I'm really worried that he's sitting on something that's, you know, a a thousandth of an inch thick, and that if he goes over a bump the wrong way, suddenly he's in charge of two halves of a bike as opposed to an entire bicycle at 80 kilometres an hour. Well, I think if if you and I are worried about him, I can only imagine what his his missus and his uh, infant child would have been like while watching that today. I think if if he and Michelle have any more children, it'll be a miracle. Seriously, when watching that today, I had to look down to my crotch and reassure my genitals that under no circumstances would I ever, ever put put them through the terror that Chris Froome subjected the contents of his bib shots to today. No, absolutely. And I mean, a situation where we've often criticised him as having, you know, a, a set plan that he sticks to. And we've said, you know, he really knows how to ride within himself, talking about, you know, being dropped, working your way back to the peloton. There are entire websites devoted to him staring at his stem and being ruled by his power meter. What we saw today was a champion's mindset. He saw an opportunity. It may have been planned, you know, it may have been plan B, 
Um, but, you know, going over the top, he saw an opportunity, thought, at the worst, I'll, I'll, I'll have some fun, and put in an attack which gained, you know, not very many seconds. It put him in yellow, but it's by no means a decisive gap. But what he did do is he said to all his rivals, you think you know me. You know, you think you know that I'm going to up my cadence to washing machine levels five or four kilometres before the finish of a climb, and that's how I'm going to attack you. Well, today, I've just kind of screwed with your mind a bit, because I've got time at you in a descent, and you were not expecting that. You didn't think I could do it, and now I'm in yellow. So what are you going to do? It was tactically brilliant. I loved that today. It was bike racing of the highest calibre. It really was. It was fantastic to watch. And I, I don't know whether it was either or the, the following things that the chasing little group from the, the top of the Perisord were so stunned by what they were seeing that they couldn't react quickly enough, or they just simply didn't have the cojones or possibly a combination of both. I think, uh, I, I, I mean, I have a theory which, having gushed about Chris Froome for the last five minutes, you know, laying aside my worries about his top tube's integrity, um, my opinion, because we saw a lot of chat between Nairo Quintana and Alejandro Valverde at the top, and in fact, commentators across a variety of platforms were thinking, well, Nairo's going to use Alejandro Valverde as his attack dog. Valverde's got a reputation as a superb descender. And at the top, I fully expected Froome to be reeled in within one or two kilometres, you know, once Alejandro fit, you know, hit the front of the pack. I actually think that Nairo essentially went, nah, he's not going to get much time, he'll lose it all tomorrow, don't stress yourself too much, just keep him in sight, Alejandro. Well, it's an interesting theory and and one that, that has a, a lot of merit. And Chris Froome himself was saying in his post-race interview that he really enjoyed it. And I think that was true. You could see it on his face that there was something there about this being like... The face of a choir boy, according to Carlton Kirby. He's got very low standards in choir boys. He would never, ever make it as a 70s presenter in the BBC. <laughs> I think we should move very swiftly <laughs> along from that. I, I was going to say that what Chris Finn was talking about was how it was very much old school, like like you were saying about about 80s racing. Totally. You know, just just go for it. And, and it really kind of reinforced this idea of, I'm just going to go for it and have some fun and see what happens. Now, whether you're right to say that, that Quintana et al., decided that it wasn't worth the the risk, he wouldn't get too much time and he may suffer for it tomorrow, was actually something that, that Chris Froome himself said, because when talking, he, he suddenly kind of realised, well, I put in a shift today, I, I may actually pay for that tomorrow. So he posed that question of himself and said, well, we'll just have to see, uh, which does set it all up spectacularly for, for tomorrow. But, I mean, I just can't get over how surprising that descent was to to go for it at the top of the Perisord and take it all the way to to the finish line and and you were talking again about how it was it was tactically great and it was just proper old school bike riding we even saw him put in an Eno-esque performance uh, about three quarters of the way up the climb when the the crowd were encroaching a bit too much there was someone running alongside him and he just it was like, uh, you remember that film Any Which Way But Loose with Clint yes. Eastwood? Left turn Clyde. <laughs> as Chris Froome just went scalp and knocked a, a spectator over. And I think, you know, we're, we're never ones to encourage violence, but I think really it was the only answer today. I, quite right. 
No, what a muppet that spectator was. I've got to say, though, being punched by Chris Froome must be like a lover's caress. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was quite a big group, and I think that was part of the problem. I mean, we're used to that late in the race on climbs like the Perisord, you know, very serious climbs, which are, are writ large in the history of the tour, um, of there being a relatively small group. Now... I, I thought we saw very conservative racing today, and we did. But there were loads of people who said they'd been on their knees all day. So Team Sky were clearly setting a hellish pace. I mean, we have to give uh, you know, kudos in the day to, to Sergio Hanal, who was incredibly strong. I mean, it was a great day for the Colombians with Nairo Quintana as well. Uh, but that was a big group that crested the summit. you know, And the, the spectators were no more aggravating than they usually are. But instead of having you know, two, three, four... GC guys at the front there were what 10 or 12 folks still in that group so I, I think um, you know, it was a bigger group than expected which meant it filled a bit more of the road than normal but seeing Chris Froome punch somebody I just had to laugh I mean you know these guys with their stick insect arms should not be punching they just shouldn't because it's like uh, it's like getting off the bike and fighting it's just ridiculous yes but the, the guy was clearly asking for it if you ask me and I, I actually do as much as I'm not a fan of having to resort to violence, these idiots actually do deserve the, the, the punch that, that, that you got oh, today. I, I know they do, but when Bernardino punched you, you knew you'd been punched. <laughs> you know, things That's a were very better good point, in well the old days. <laughs> that is actually a very good point well made. I wouldn't like to be punched by Bernardino, not even today. Um, that picture where the, the strikers are crossing the road. Bernardino looks like a still from a Rocky movie. Yeah, I mean, Bernardino had gone for it properly off the bike. The bike was discarded and he didn't even care whether it was, you know, chain side down or anything. It was just, I'm straight in there. But I'm it, having you, mate. I'm having you, mate, exactly. Um, getting back to events that, that happened today, I mean, it really was a hard, hard pace for, from the gun. And I think it's absolutely right that riders were saying they were, they were on their knees today because they went from the neutralised start almost straight on to, to the Tourmalet. Mm. And we had a break of, of three riders, uh, Pino, Rafa Maika and Tony Martin, which was funny in itself because Rafa Maika had been telling Eurosports Laura Messiger at the start of the day that absolutely no way would he be in the break. He would be sticking with, with Alberto Contador all day today to make sure he was okay. Um, yeah, I mean, and, uh, Ashley and I were talking, Ashley had a chat with one of the, the Tinkoff press officers and you'll hear that later. But in essence, Micah and uh, Kreuziger were definitely given free reign today. Um, you know, it, the point was made by Alberto Contador that with Oleg Tinkoff bowing out, um, they're actually looking for contracts, you know, and uh, I think it's it's good as a team leader. You know, there are loads of rumours going on, going around about Alberto, but it's good as a team leader that he's thinking about those people who um, have served them in the past. Maybe not quite as well as they should have, but they have served them in the past. And I, I think Alberto Contador will be really glad to see the back of Oleg Tinkoff. Uh, but I don't think we can have any theories about ignoring the radios or anything today. I think that was a team who realise they don't have a series pop at the GC and you know essentially it's just every man for himself now. Yeah and really I wanted to talk about that contract announcement he is signing for them on the rest day but it won't be officially announced until August the 1st mm. but really I'm kind of a bit annoyed at that because as I said on Twitter this morning you can't really see a cohesive Tinkoff team 
going forward, and it really is a throwing in the towel from Alberto Contador himself. And it, it may be absolutely right and proper for him to do so, given the injuries he's sustained. But it, it just felt like a really, we should maybe, you know, out of respect for the race, if nothing else, save this until after the, the Tour de France is finished. The only ones that are really winning here are Trek, Segafredo, who get the, the maximum amount of publicity. Yeah, I think, you know, maybe they should just follow the rules, but, you know, that's uh, that's maybe an old-fashioned thing. First of August is when they can announce it. That's when they should announce it. But, the, you know, the, the rest day of the tour is always a, a media zoo. It's always a media zoo. So, you know, he's milking it. And I don't think there's a lot of loyalty now between Alberto Contador and, and Oleg Tinkoff and his team. Uh, because when you think about the amount of times Alberto has been left isolated uh, and not just because they don't have the money that Team Sky has, you know, it's because the team has been slightly chaotic slightly disorganised you know, the plan just haven't worked I think I, I saw somebody earlier s- t- today say, essentially Tinkov is loads of random riders with Alberto Contador and Peter Sagan happening to wear the same jersey and too often that's been the feeling we've got I think so Alberto's keen to move on but you know, it would be better if he waited I agree with you there mm. uh, Just a couple of more things on it Alberto Contador, uh, an interesting quote from Bjarne Rees, who uh, does some punditry for one of the, the stations that are, are covering the race back in Denmark. And he was saying after the stage today that Contador would have beaten everybody today if it had not been for the crash. I could have been a contender. <laughs> well, he's been more than a contender for, for quite some time. Yeah, that, I mean, it's a really easy thing to say, isn't it? You know, I, I could have done a 22 minute 10 last week if I'd just not, you know, not been able to cycle. Yes, quite. I mean, it's, you know, you can make up hypotheticals all day, all day long. Um, I, I think Alberto would have been a lot better. I mean, the fact that he's been able to limit his losses despite what are clearly very real injuries indicates that his form is superb. I don't think Reese's comment is, is ridiculous, but I don't think it's particularly helpful because we are where we are, you know? I mean, why even bother speculating when we've got such an exciting race in front of us with, you know, one of the most thrilling finales to a stage I can remember for a very long time from a guy who is genuinely one of the two favourites for the overall, taking the race, or, you know, on his own, by the scruff of the neck, shaking it and coming out with some time, speculating on what might have happened to an injured rider. What does that add to the conversation? Not a great deal. Now, one man who seems to be up and down like a a jack-in-the-box, and that's the clean version of that analogy, uh, um, Thibaut Pino, who had a terrible day yesterday and then had a great day early part of today and then had a terrible day again. I actually expected Pino to go out today. I think I might even have mentioned it in one of my rare moments of clarity in yesterday's show. And it was good to see him bounce back. Um... You know, and clearly aiming for mountains points. You know, he's trying to get what he can from this tour now that his GC contender um, credibility has has gone by the wayside after his his jour songs yesterday. Um, I was surprised to see him collapse so dramatically after that uh, initial foray in the breakaway had gone. But it's good to see that he's taken his responsibilities to the team and to La Belle France seriously. You know, he was out there with passion, riding on his guts. So I, I, he quite impressed me today, actually. So a few other riders I think we need to talk about simply because it plays into what you were saying a few minutes ago about it being quite a large group that contested the the ascent of the Perisod today. Um, Dan Martin looking really, really good, had a, a tentative little attack himself and mm-hmm. probably chief amongst the 
really impressive uh, riders today were was um, Adam Yates of Orica Bike Exchange. Second in the overall. I mean, you know, I, I'm not particularly nationalistic about cycling, as you well know. Um, you know, my favourite, none of my favourite riders are, are, are British. But to see at this point, you know, two stages in at the Pyrenees, British riders first and second is, you know, it's, it's slightly unusual. Um if you know, if you're not Bradley Wiggins and Chris Froome or whatever, but for Yates, he's been really developing this year. To be where he is, he's there on merit. You know, he's riding strongly with the leaders. Clearly, a huge talent that we're only just going to see develop as he, you know, as he ages. He's very, very young for a GC contender who just now. And for Dan Martin, I thought he had serious intent today. You know, when he crossed the line, there was a kind of wry shake of his head, a tilt of his head, where you, you could clearly. Th- See him thinking, this stage should have been mine. I had this and I let it slip away. So he's got proper ambition and had a good dig that looked to put some of the con- you know some of the other contenders into some real trouble before they got to the summit of the Perizord. So Dan Martin is is riding his best grown tour ever so far. I'm quite looking forward to seeing him and you know what he does in Arcalis tomorrow. And another rider that I, I'm looking forward to, to seeing and probably carrying all the French hopes for GC now is uh, Roman Bardi, who was another Another one of those who had a, a tentative little attack off the front. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when do you when do you see somebody in brown shorts going to the front of a race and you think, oh, actually, that's a proper attack? You know, Nico Roach used to flatter to deceive. Um, as you do, I've had lots of people who were nearly capable GC contenders in lots of races, good climbers like Pozzavivo. But, you know, Bardi is, is a proper top, solid top five guy if he gets everything right and is more than capable of the podium as we've seen so um, I'm actually, you know I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to see him carry on attacking because he was just as strong as I would say all but two of that leaders group that we saw today. So, you know, it's, it's a proper fight moving forward. So I think it's now time we catch up with Eurosport presenter Ashley House to get his thoughts on today's exciting stage. I'm joined today from underneath a, a shady tree by Ashley House from uh, Tour Extra. Apparently it's quite warm where you are, Ashley. <laughs> it's absolutely boiling hot. I'm not sheltering under a tree, actually, John. You're, you're wrong. I'm actually sheltering underneath the caravan of the podium girls. <laughs> well, that, that's your uh, your usual haunt after the stage most days, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just, uh, that's a nicer image for you all to have <laughs> just talking to me. <laughs> I tell you what, though, I mean, we saw a, a relatively conservative stage, and that doesn't really do it justice. I mean, they raced incredibly fast at the start. You know, it wasn't until the tourmalay that we saw the break go. Um, but, you know, I, coming over the Perizord, I thought we were just going to see relatively conservative racing. And then that final descent, it was like, I've got this theme for this tour of it being a flashback to the 80s. It was really old school racing where Chris Froome just took the race by, by the horns and, and, and wrung some time out of it. Yeah, interestingly, when I'm um, talking to both Chris and Nicholas Portal, uh, his sports director, it definitely was not planned that at all. And mm. I'm sure the commentators mentioned it, but you obviously saw um, Naira Quintana getting a, a, a bottle from, from the Soigneur. And I think Chris just must have seen the Soigneur before, uh, before the top, before the summit, and knew that was going to happen. So it took that chance to go. Um, it, was, it was a phenomenal piece of descending. I mean, a frightening piece of descending as well, when you look at the speed that he was going. And also, when you look at his, at his position on the bike, which just reminded me uh, of, Peter, of the way Peter Sagan descends, which when Peter Sagan started doing it, everyone said, oh, that's new, that's clever, but very dangerous. And to see Chris doing it, who's, let's face it, slightly ungainly, 
on, on the bicycle. Um, and to see him doing it was definitely frightening, but goodness me, how impressive. I tell you what, though, when Peter Sagan does it, there's an element of style about it. Yeah. When Chris Froome does it, it's like all of those kind of public information films about ducks being really serene above the water and their legs going absolutely <laughs> batshit underneath the waterline. <laughs> yeah, it is rather, isn't it? it, it it's blooming effective, though, both for ducks and for Chris Froome. Um, <laughs> I mean, absolutely no doubt. I mean, he's obviously been working on his descending. He, in, historically, he's not been a great descender, but the one, the thing about... Team Sky, I suppose, but and with Bradley we saw it, and we're definitely seeing it with Chris, is that they isolate the things that they're not strong at, and they really do work enormously hard on improving uh, what might be considered a weakness. And when you consider that Jerry Governor, the, uh, the, the guy who actually sort of plans the race, probably put the four downhill finishes in to try and make it so it's not a race that Chris is just going to win, mm-hmm. uh, Chris has obviously went, well, okay, you want to do that? No problem. I'll work on my descending. And... You know, and, and, I, and I'll take the yellow jersey on a descent on the Pyrenees this time instead of instead of a summit finish. I tell you what I thought was really interesting. You had a great interview with Portal, Chris's DS after the yeah. after the race, and everybody goes on about Team Sky essentially being you know this this robot that does everything according to the power meter. You know, and they, they race conservatively according to a pre-considered plan. Portal, for the next few days, essentially shrugged his shoulders and said to you, "Well, we'll see how it goes. You know, we're kind of flexible." Yeah, and what, what, the thing that really came to my mind when he, when he said that was the fact that you and Scott have talked a lot about the fact that, um, that Team Sky have no plan B, whereas actually what Nicholas Fortale said was what happened today was plan B. Yeah, which, I mean, that's... And it was proper bike racing. I mean, you can say what you like about him staring at his stem, you can say what you like about him being ugly, but that was the kind of killer instinct that would have made Eddie Merckx proud today. Yeah, it really would, actually, and... And we'll be talking to Greg Lemond later on about on um, on the tour by Lemond, and I, I know that Greg's really impressed with the way that Chris descended today, and everybody is. I mean, and and again, just unexpected. And to be honest, even though Chris does normally attack on uphill finishes, Pierre Saint-Martin last year, nobody really expected him to go quite as hard as he did that day, and nobody expected him to go like he did today on the descent either. The one thing I will say, which is which it has worked out, even though Chris is turn around and st- stuck a middle finger up at those who have put the descents, the, uh, the downhill finishes in to try and stop it being um, uh, a procession, is that actually mm-hmm. it's still incredibly close at the top. Yeah, I mean, the, the leaders group at the top was really tight. I mean, it isn't a case that where we saw where Sky came in with the marginal gains at the start, where suddenly, you know, they were a minute ahead of some of their competitors. There were still a lot of guys in that lead group, and you had people like, you know, Dan Martin finishing second. There's a, a really credible bunch of contenders. Not one of them actually looked much stronger than any of the others. No, that's true. There are a couple of things to know about that as well. In the interview that we did with Nicholas Portal, if you, cons- if you heard it, if you listened really closely, what he said was, yeah, we need to watch out for the competitors. And then he said, for the competitor. And then he repeated the competitor. So I, obviously he's talking about Nairo Quintana. Uh, yeah. And the other thing, of course, is that both TJ and Richie were up there too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really impressive. The, the other thing that really chuffed me was we heard that um, Bernie Isel and, and Mark Cavendish were you know, 22 minutes behind at the start of the Perizur, and there was serious worry about them not making the cut-off. But Mark, in fact, made it, and we'll, we'll ride to Arcalus tomorrow still wearing the green jersey. So for, you know, for people who've been delighted with the success of Dimension Data, it just carries on. Yeah, and how many times in Mark Cavendish's career has he relied on Bernie Isel to get him over those mountains. Goodness me. What, I mean, what an unbelievable, I'm not even going to say colleague or part team, teammate, but what an unbelievable friend Bernie Isel is actually to Mark Cavanagh. 
Yeah, I mean, remember in the Olympics, Bernie was essentially riding for Mark, even though they were in different countries. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not. I'm not sure that's. I'm not sure that's particularly admirable. But, but yeah, you're right. Of course. <laughs> I tell you, the thing that struck me today as well, um, we saw a lot of criticism from Sean Yates and some of the other DSs at Tinkoff uh, about the fact that Alberto was left isolated yesterday. Again, he was isolated, but it's clear that that was his decision today to to actually let his teammates go. Because what was it he said? They're looking for contracts, which both implies that he's not. And there are loads of rumours flying about uh, him going to Trek Segafredo. But, you know, that's what a leader does. He looks after his domestiques. Yeah, and uh, and as you've just alluded to there, John, after the stage as well, Alberto's repeated, he said, Roman and Rafa Micah have completely carte blanche to do whatever they want because they're looking for new contracts. Just a little footnote on that. I was talking to one of the members of the Tinkoff team today, and Oleg has actually said to them, if they get two or three more stage wins in this Tour de France, then he'll stay on in cycling. However, the guy also said to me, we don't actually know whether he was joking or whether he was being serious. So... Even within Tinkoff's team, there's, there's a whole there's a whole load of uncertainty. Do you know what really annoys me is that's playing with people's livelihoods. You yeah, know, do you is, stay yeah. in the hope that Oleg's going to stay, or do you go and look for another job? Because we're at a point where contracts shortly will be in short supply, and that's I mean it's virgin and irresponsible for me. Though. Yeah, uh, yeah, it is. I mean, I'm a lot closer to Oleg uh, to Oleg Tinkoff um, physically and geographically than you are right now, so I'm going to I'm going to uh, not say things out loud. <laughs> right, I think we, I think we can see exactly where you are then, because he's been photobombing everybody as well as his nude stuff with the watering can the other day. Yeah, um, that's right. And he and he came past our studio today in uh, you know beeping the horn in um, in very in very uh, very fluorescent glasses and so on as well. But um, uh, it's been a great day in the Pyrenees. It's, I, I suppose we should have expected Chris expected Chris to, to go for the yellow jersey today. He's done it the last two times he's won the tour, but nobody expected him to do it like that. No, and I, I mean, as we as we move to the end of the Pyrenees, you know, saga of the tour, we're two stages into the Pyrenees, we still don't have any answers. So I don't know about you, but I'm absolutely gagging for it tomorrow. I mean, Arcalus is a great climb that hasn't been used very much, but I think we'll see more answers tomorrow because there's nowhere to hide in a descent afterwards. Yeah, absolutely no. There's nowhere to hide tomorrow at all. And um, and one, you can hear Greg Lamont in the background taking the Mickey pretending I'm buying and selling shares. Uh, but um, one of the things I will tell you about today is we uh, we spoke to Mikhail Neve afterwards, just uh, off the record. We spoke to a couple of other guys as well, Perito, um, uh, who else? We spoke, uh, Vandenbroek as well, and all of them just said, you know, they were absolutely on their knees today. They just said it was non-stop all day. As you said, they started very fast. Then the break went. Then they were riding. We were star and sky, and all of them just said. It was non-stop and very, very hard today. Well, I, ho- I hope you find some nice shade for Arculus tomorrow. But uh, meanwhile, get yourself along to Greg Lamond and, and s- stop him mocking you on the telephone. <laughs> oh, he never stops mocking. Never stops mocking, but he's, uh, he's earned the right to do it. Uh, one thing I will say is I'm absolutely positive that Greg's going to have some really good stuff to say tonight on Le Tour by Le Mans. So do tune in for that. It'll be repeated, uh, I'm sure, throughout the night on Eurosport too. This is the heartland of his success. I mean, he made his career on these roads and his, his observations are, are absolutely worthy of listening to. Yeah, that's right. And he won his first mountain stage just 18 kilometres away from where we're standing now. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Talk to you tomorrow, Ashley. Thanks as ever for your input, John. Thank you very much indeed. Have a great night, everybody. Bye-bye. 
So the top 10s for today. Chris Froome takes the win ahead of Dan Martin by 13 seconds, who led home the chasing pack of Joaquim Rodriguez in third, Roman Bardet in fourth, Roman Kreuziger in fifth, Fabio Aru in sixth. In seventh place was Adam Yates. In eighth, Alejandro Valverde. In ninth, Bauke Mollema. And rounding out the top 10 was Richie Porte. Big changes to the general classification, of course, today. Chris Froome moves into the race lead 16 seconds ahead of Adam Yates, along with Joaquim Rodriguez in third. Dan Martin sits in fourth at 17 seconds, while Alejandro Valverde sits in fifth at 19 seconds. In sixth at 23 seconds is Nairo Quintana. In seventh, Fabio Aru. Eighth, TJ Van Garderen. Ninth, Roman Bardi. And rounding out the top ten is Bauke Mollema. If today's stage has left you breathless at the scenery offered up by the midi Pyrenees Departement of France, then be prepared to grab the oxygen mask again tomorrow when we nip across the border to the Spanish side of the mountain range. The 184.5 kilometres of stage 9 starts in Vielha Valderan and immediately ramps up to the first category Port de la Bonigua. Three more first cat and second cat climbs are to be crested along the way before the peloton touch the Orcat summit finish at Arculus, which the tour has only ever visited in 1997 and more recently in 2009. I tell you, I've seen um, a lot of the stages we rode today. I mean, I, I was brought to mind memories of the tour, Molly, that frankly I, I thought were better left in a small darkened room at the back of my brain. Um, I have watched uh, Arculus, I, I mean, one of the most memorable stages where we saw. Um, Jan Ulrich come to the fore as a, a young German, you know, Putin or eclipsing Bjarne Arnaris and his, his telecom team. But I haven't ridden tomorrow's stages. But Andorra is, you know, it's renowned for essentially being a tiny wee duty free with big, massive big hills on all sides. Um, I think we're in for an absolute treat tomorrow because you've got a stage that looks almost as difficult almost as difficult as we saw today, but with a massive F-off climb at the end instead of a descent. So, I, I you know, we, we saw a brilliant GC ride from Chris Froome today. I think we're going to see a far more traditional GC shootout on the, the climb to Arculus tomorrow. And I think the GC is looking more like it should look now. I mean, yesterday, mm-hmm. you know, across the past couple of days, it's just looked weird, you know, with this huge five and a half minute, six minute um, gap. But actually, I just while well, I remember the the top 10 on GC that we gave out yesterday was actually wrong because it hadn't been updated to take into consideration the events of that uh, Flamme Rouge collapsing. Uh, horrible watching the footage of that. I mean, I was talking yesterday about the, the danger of a, a pack in full swing hitting that once you saw how quickly it came down in front of Adam Yates, credit to him. I mean, all those stitches and he's still in second. Once you saw how quickly the thing collapsed, I mean, it, it hammered that home again. Imagine that happening to a rampage and sprinting peloton. Horrific shots. Mm. And I still can't get my head round what they think happened. It was something involving a spectator and their belt on just by accident deflated yeah, the entire right, thing. Uh, I mean, what's, what's going on here? Is there a weird twist on autoerotic asphyxiation? I genuinely had a picture of someone going into accident in emergency saying, I happened to be hoovering naked. That's and- exactly it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it was uh, it was it was not very nice, very dangerous. I mean, they need to address it. You know, you put a cover on the hole so nobody can stick anything inappropriate in it or whatever. <laughs> I think that was a description too far. I'm just saying. <laughs> 
But getting back to the general classification. Yeah, that's what Chris Froome's top tube's thinking right about now. <laughs> Internal cable routing, let's not go there. <laughs> um, back to the GC for the sake of sanity. Uh, looking a lot more reasonable and as we would expect with the gaps, we really right across the top 10 being, being only... 23 seconds so it's still anybody's race or it now becomes anybody's race is probably better to say and with that in mind what is what is your thoughts regarding how it will play out tomorrow you say it'll be more of a GC battle but how does that manifest itself now my brain says that we've seen Chris Froome be incredibly strong today um, and history would indicate that when he's that strong even when the gap isn't huge, he'll consolidate it and you know move forward to a more commanding position when he's faced with an uphill uh, finish, as he will be tomorrow at, at Arculus. Um, that's entirely possible. But genuinely, part of me thinks that we saw Nairo Quintana and Alejandro Valverde today go, let's just control this descent. Let's not take any daft risks. You know, let him have his 20 or 30 seconds or whatever he gets, because I'm having him tomorrow. And Nairo Quintana looked... You know, do you remember you were saying um, Vincenzo Nibali was, looked really threatening when he was climbing in the Giro because he didn't look like he was even breathing? And that's what Nairo Quintana looked like to me. The Colombians are clearly in awesome form. You know, and although in a different team, you know, Sergio Hanal was really impressive uh, today. I think tomorrow, um, if Chris Froome isn't absolutely on top of his game, then Nairo Quintana will move into the yellow jersey uh, because I think he's going to take it hard up Arcalus tomorrow and we'll see who can hang on. I mean, it's that simple. I'm not laughing, I Take it hard up Arcalus. <laughs> what are we in an episode of this here? <laughs> well... <laughs> There's two things there if I can possibly stop myself from giggling. It's like being grabbed by the trotters. <laughs> uh, Chris from himself said that he's, he was not worried, but he would have to see if his fun-loving exploits today would have any effect on performance tomorrow. And the other thing that's popping into to my mind is surely Nada Quintana will have learned a lesson from last year in not to leave it too late like he did in 2015. And yeah, I mean, with those two things in mind, I think you're right. I think Movistar have to be what we saw Team Sky be today, and that's controlling at the front and then setting up Nairo Quintana to attack at, at, at some point on, on Arculus tomorrow. And you need to remember, I mean, you think about last year. Um, yeah, Nairo Quintana was able to take time uh, towards the end of the race where perhaps Chris Froome was tiring. And one of our uh, beloved subscribers said today that he thought that, that this easier first week had actually played into Froome's hands because he wouldn't be as fatigued going into that final week as he was last year, yep. which is a very good point. But then we remember the years when, uh, you know, when Froome has been dominant on the climbs. Nairo Quintana, as the young white jersey winner who ended up on the podium, even then was able to put a Froome who was absolutely at the height of his powers in difficulty on the climbs. I really think if Nairo Quintana wants this tour, he has to start laying the foundations for it tomorrow. And I think we've had two brutal days in the Pyrenees. I mean, it's looked like conservative racing. As you heard from Ashley talking to the riders once they crossed the line, and as we saw, actually just, you know, we saw an interview with Geraint Thomas with Laura Messiger on Eurosport, 
they're not being, you know, attacking stages because they're going absolutely at their limit and all of these guys are on their knees. And when you've got a Nairo Quintana looking as comfortable as he, had to, as he did today, when other folk around him are really struggling, albeit they're all finishing together, you know, we aren't seeing massive breaks. I think if Nairo's going to win the Tour, he has to start laying the foundations tomorrow. And I think we've had some great racing in the Pyrenees. I think tomorrow will cap the weekend with a, a stage that will go a long way towards defining this 2016 Tour de France. I think it's going to be brilliant. Yeah, and the other thing that I think Nairo Quintana should be cognizant of is Chris Froome's comments before the Tour started that he was looking to ensure he didn't fade quite as badly as he did last year. He, he mm-hmm. realised that he could have lost the Tour had Nairo Quintana gone for it a bit earlier so that again I think should be on on Quintana's mind and you're right to say that if he wants it he has to start going and and seeing what what Froome is made of this year fascinating prospect for tomorrow yeah I'm I'm, I'm not even going to say what I am but you can imagine yeah we can imagine yes and the broadcasters and their infinite wisdom are showing the entire stage tomorrow folks so you know just have a big pile of food at the ready lots of cake and have at it. I was really cross about that, actually, because I was going to go up to Stirling and have a nice breakfast at Corrieri's with my, with my middle boy. Uh, but instead, I'll, I'll just have to sit enjoying cycling for the entire day. It's, it's a real hardship. Somebody's no, I think you dodged a bullet, quite frankly. Uh, thank you for joining us today as Chris Froome surprises all and in the process put to bed any further accusations of being a poor bike handler. Join us again tomorrow as we discuss all the bike handling treats that were offered up in Stage 9 in another edition of The Velocast. Cast.